This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. So this afternoon we're going to be considering the nation of Syria. Quite topical given how much of our news these days is devoted to that part of the country or part of the world. So what we're going to look at in this talk, we're going to think about Syria in the past. Syria is a very ancient nation. We read that just from the, the Bible there. We saw Syria was present then and we'll see that actually Syria has been present from very, very early days. So we'll be thinking about Syria in the past. We'll be thinking about their relations with the Jews. From that reading, again, you can uh, probably surmise the relations with the Jews have not actually been that good down through the ages, and we'll come back to that. But we'll also see that prophecy, those things that God has said will come to pass in, in front of those events happening, that is the prophecy, we'll see that those things have been predicted about Syria. There are certain things that Syria has been used by God, and also things predicted about Syria that we can see both have been fulfilled, but also that are yet to be fulfilled. And then we'll think about what that means for us, what we can learn by looking at the nation of Syria in terms of how we might choose to serve God. Well, this is a, a map. We're all fairly familiar with seeing these days on the newscasts. This part of the world has been the focus of most of the world's attention and certainly the, the, the biggest nations and the most powerful nations have focused their efforts and their attention on this region for a number of years now. It's now been five years since the civil war started uh, in Syria. Uh, that's why I put that, say that picture was what Syria was like five years ago. The map today is very, very confused and it is a tragedy. Um, there's no other way to put it. Um, what's happening in Syria is a tragedy. Out of a total population before the war started of 23 million, half of them now, over sort of over 11 million, are now displaced. So half the entire country is no longer living in their homes. And 20% of them have actually left the country altogether. I mean, for us, considering the idea that in the UK, 20% of the population just has left in five years, it's just an amazing thing that uh, you know, has happened. And on top of that, we, ha we can't forget the estimated 250,000 people who have died so far in those five years. And the tragedy is it's still going on. It hasn't stopped. I know there's a ceasefire going on in some areas, but this destruction, this emptying of the land is continuing. The, the group calling itself ISIS or ISIL is destroying the history of the land. We've seen this at places like Palmyra where all of the ancient ruins and uh, monuments that come from the history of Syria are being obliterated and bulldozed. We are seeing potentially the destruction of a very ancient nation. And we'll see that the Syrians are in general a very mixed people. They're mixed to a large extent but have maintained a very close familial type and I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit more detail as I go through. But what we do say is that the Syrian people who, have been, who are in the land today, many of them could trace their lineage in the land back not just hundreds but thousands of years. The people in Syria very often have been there for a long, long time. They haven't been moved out in large numbers. Unlike other nations who have been en masse moved out of their na nation and other people brought in to fill the land, 
the Syrians in general have remained in the land for a long time, although as a nation they haven't existed for, for many hundreds or thousands of years. But one thing we learn about the Syrians is that they have never, in all their history, been able to unite politically. Even when they have the independence to do so, they have never had a unity to them. And for the majority of their time, that part of the world that we would look at as Syria and call Syria has been under foreign domination, under other nations, under other empires that have dominated and ruled that land. But Syria as a nation, as a people, as a region, has been part of the Bible account from the beginning, from virtually the beginning. So right back in Genesis, and that's where we'll be going in a minute, right back in Genesis we see this nation, this people present in the land. And by looking at these people, we can learn about God's plan and purpose with this earth, because they're part of it. God has used the people of Syria and the nation of Syria as part of his plan, and still has a use for them, even now today. And that has a, a very great relevance for us in seeing the events unfolding in Syria, and how they can tell us where we are in God's plan. I'm not going to make any apology in terms of the origin of Syria, talking from the Bible. The Bible is our uh, guide to uh, you know, what God wants us to know about his plan and purpose, but it also contains a lot of historical facts that we don't find elsewhere. We're talking about events often happening anything up to 4,000 years ago, in which case our, the, the archaeological evidence for those events and the people in that time is quite scant. But what we can say is that all of the evidence we find in the Bible, all of the events and the people that we find in the Bible where we can find archaeological evidence to back them up, they do back them up. They, are, they co coincide perfectly. The people, the kings, the rulers who are talked about in the Bible, where evidence is found, it confirms that those were the individuals at that time. So we're going to be looking sort of at Syria through, through the Bible, telling us what has happened to those people down through the years. Now the term Syria or Syrians is used in two senses in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, the first you know, books of the Bible that were sort of made up uh, the, the Jewish law, etc., they uniformly were, you know, sort of relate the word Syria or Syrians to the descendants of Aram or the Arameans, a people descended from a particular person. Whilst in the New Testament it's generally used in a wider sense to include all of those who dwell in the land at that time whether Arameans or not. Now, I've said that the people of Syria have never been united, and this goes right back to their earliest days, because within Aram there were several divisions, several districts, as, we, as we'd call it. We have different names like Padam Aram, we get that uh, in, in Genesis, or the field of Aram uh, is referred to in, in the book of Hosea. But we also get the Aram Damask, which is the Syria of Damascus. And that was probably the most dominant one, not surprising given the dominance of, uh, of Damascus within the region. So, who is Aram? Well, here we have the sons of Noah. This is how they're distributed. So of the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, that we're told about in Genesis, uh, and, you know, they then had their own sons uh, who, who went on to populate the land. And one of those sons was Shem. And he had five sons, uh, you know, which were Elam, Ashur, 
Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. So Aram was one of the sons of Shem. And we can see from the, from the slide how the, this divided up. So the sons of Shem uh, are there in the land with Aram up in the area that we would associate with uh, Syria and occupying that place. And this shows that there is a, a close relation. This is the first point where we see there's a close relation between the people of Syria, the sons of Aram, the descendants of Aram, and the Jews. Because we know that it was from Alphaxad, who was down nearer to the Persian Gulf, who it was from uh, that, uh, from Alphaxad, that, uh, that Abraham descended. So we can see that they are related. Uh, sometimes these descendants of Shem are called the Semitic stock. So they are all you know, akin to each other. So we have a close relation right from the beginning between the Jews and, and those people living in, in Syria. Now, when they started to move in this, into this area was very early on. And we know this because of Abram's journey. So Abraham, or Abram as he was uh, when he started his journey, left Ur of the Chaldees, down where Arphaxad's uh, descendants had lived, and moved up the Euphrates Valley, up to Haran, and then came down into the Promised Land that God had told him about, uh, and led him into the land of Canaan. But we know that there were already people living in and around Damascus, and that Damascus as a city existed even at this time. So we're talking close to 2000 BC. We know that because in Genesis we read this. Uh, this is Abraham. Uh, it says, But Abraham said, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abraham, then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So we have Eliezer of Damascus. So this is where this Eliezer uh, came from, uh, was Damascus. So even at this time, when Abram was in the land of Canaan, he passed through, this, uh, through the northern part, we know that Damascus already existed uh, at this point. But we know that God didn't leave Abram childless. He, he gave him Isaac. But even through Isaac, we get another connection with Syria and with the, the descendants of Aram. The reason we know that is because when Abram was getting old, he asked one of his servants in his house to make sure that his son did not marry one of the women of the land of Canaan. He didn't marry a Canaanite. But he instructed that servant to make sure that he married somebody from the country of his family and to take a wife from them. And so we get this. It says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. So we see immediately there is a close marriage between the Syrians and the Jewish people. <coughs> and it goes beyond that. For you know, even in the next generation, we get this in Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padamaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban and your mother's brother. So we see again on these two generations, where yeah, sort of in Isaac and then in Jacob, we see marriages with people of this land of Padamaram. 
of what we would classify as Syria today. So we see a close relation by marriage with the people of Syria. And we know that obviously from the descendants of Jacob, whose name was then changed to Israel, that we get the 12 tribes of the, uh, of the children of Israel. And they also share languages as well. Uh, Aramaic was a common language used across the whole of the area, uh, and it's certainly a language that Jesus himself knew, and it's still spoken in parts of Syria today. Uh, so it's a, not a dead language, it is a language that has continued down through all the millennia. But there are differences. So even though there are these close relations between these two people, they do not share the same uh, ideas in terms of, uh, re- you know, in terms of religion. Just gone one too far. Um, in terms of religion, they are very different. We know that we read the you know, you know, read of this in Judges chapter ten and verse six. The people of Israel again did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So this is one of the classic ways in which the children of Israel went away from serving their God, the one true living God. And they went and served the gods of these other surrounding nations, including the gods of, the Sy- of Syria. Now we know from, from excavations and from what we're told in other parts of the Bible that the Syrians worshipped Hadad, Rimmon, sometimes joined together to become Hadad Rimmon, but they also worshipped Baal and Bel and Ashtaroth and Ishtar, and these were deities that were worshipped across that whole region, uh, not just in Syria but across the whole region, and indicate that you know, certainly some of those were taken up ju- during the time of Babylon and the influence of Babylon. So we see that, unfortunately, although they had these close ties with the children of Israel, they did not put their trust in the God of Israel, that they had all of these pagan gods that they served. And unfortunately, they never, they never gave those up. <coughs> we can certainly say that the Syrians throughout their whole history, in general, have been hostile to the Jews. And there have been wars with them from the time of King David onwards. So from, you know, from King David onwards, they have been fighting. Now through, throughout the time of David and into his son uh, Solomon's time, reign, they were subdued. That The children of Israel were dominant over Syria. But once Solomon uh, had died and his sons took over and the land was divided between the northern and the southern kingdoms, then very often at those times, the you know, sort of uh, Syria had the upper hand and dominated uh, over the children of Israel. And this wasn't just by chance. This was God's will coming to pass. <coughs> but we know that for a time, the land that we would call Syria was under the control of the children of Israel. Because we know that uh, from the, the furthest extents of the, the uh, kingdom of David and Solomon in about 1000 BC, you can see from the map that it encompasses and includes all of the, t- the place that we would call Syria today, sort of Aram, and all the way up to the Euphrates River. That was the extent of their kingdom at its maximum. And we also read these words from, you know, sort of from Chronicles and from Samuel. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. 
And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And also, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadezeah, king of Zobar, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And also, then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. So we get the idea that during the reign of David, during the reign of Solomon after him, the Syrians were very much under the control of the you know, children of Israel. But they, you know, the, the, but the children of Israel, but the Syrians never came to accept that rule. They never came to want to be part of those people or to try and join themselves. They were, they were always willing to fight. And we read of this in Second Samuel in chapter 10. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rohab and the Syrians of Zobar, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makar, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobar, Beth-Rehob, Ishtob, and Makar were by themselves in the field. So we see a bit of the character of the Syrians there, that they were willing to be bought at a price, they were quite happy to uh, go out and fight for money, but they were quite happy to go out and fight against Israel. So whilst Israel dominated them at this time, they were not happy about it and always were fighting, uh, you know, trying to break free. But we, we see quite clearly in the Bible, well, the one thing the Bible makes absolutely clear is that God raises up nations and puts them down. Because we read of this uh, in Daniel. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and give it to give it, it to whomever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. So this is King, ne King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings there's ever been, stating quite clearly that the God of Israel is the Most High God, and ruleth in the, in the kingdom of men, and sets up the uh, sets up men whenever he will. And when King Nebuchadnezzar was removed from power, according to uh, God's prophecy, so God prophesied that King Nebuchadnezzar would lose his throne, that he would be put, put out, and that he would behave like an animal for a number of years before he would then be brought back and God would raise him back up to the position he'd held before. This was a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interpreted for him. And after Nebuchadnezzar, came back to his senses and was restored he said these words I Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honor him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him what have you done at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and noblers restored to me, I was restored to my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So we see that kings are raised and put in position and brought down according to God's will. And we see that, unfortunately, time and again 
in relation to the children of Israel. Because we know that God had promised the children of Israel if they obeyed him, he would bless them. But if, he, if they were disobedient to him, that he would curse them, that he would bring uh, you know, troubles against them to remind them of their need to serve God. And we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee several ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the nations of the earth. So this is what God had said would come to pass on them if they you know, stopped obeying him and they turned away from him. And that is what happened. Unfortunately, we can see that the land of Israel was divided. So rather than a united kingdom, we have two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom divided. And, after, and, all, and throughout all of the time before they were, those kingdoms themselves were taken away, they were then harried by the surrounding nations. The curses came upon them. And we read that in our opening uh, reading in 1 Kings chapter 20. We see one occasion in which God used the Syrians as a means to bring uh, yeah, sort of punishment on the children of Israel. Because yeah, sort of that's when we read uh, about Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, one of the yeah, very long-reigning kings of Syria, who was in charge and gathered those other kings from the surrounding time, surrounding area, and demanded this tribute of the children of Israel, of Ahab, who was king of Israel at that time. And Ahab didn't put his trust in God, didn't turn to God and ask God to deliver them from the Syrians, but instead capitulated. And this was one of the problems with the children of Israel, that they didn't realize that they could put their trust in God, that they trusted in themselves and in what they could achieve to deliver themselves from these oppressors, but it, you know, unfortunately they didn't learn that lesson that God was trying to teach them. And 150 years later in Judah, we still see the same thing happening. In Second uh, Chronicles in chapter 28, we read this. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not what was right, what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. Verse 5, therefore the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria who defeated him and took a captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. So we see there God has a plan and God is in charge of these nations and God was using the Syrians on this occasion as he has throughout history using these nations as a way of correcting and showing his dominance, his control but also trying to bring his people, the children of Israel, back into obedience. Now we come across another Syrian, one of the very you know, one of the few that were named, in Second Kings in chapter five, where we read about this individual, Naaman. We're told who Naaman was. He was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And he was a great and honourable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So again, Syria is in the hands of God. God is using the nation to bring about the victories. Now what we see about Naaman is that he was a leper. He was a leper and he was suffering from leprosy and therefore he wanted to be cured of this. And one of his servants, one of the servants that they had uh, captured from Israel, was a little maid who told, the king, you know, told Naaman that if he went to Israel and found the man of God, Elisha, the prophet of God, that he could cure him of his leprosy. 
And it says something about Naaman that he believed this little girl, this little maid, and he went. He went all the way from Syria, all the way to find Elisha, and he did. And when he found him, Elisha told him to go and dip himself in the Jordan three times, seven times, sorry. And so, although he he bulked initially, uh, he did actually do that in the end. He actually went through and dipped himself seven times and was made clean and was restored. It says, restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. And what did Naaman do then? Well, he goes back to find Elisha, and we read these words. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So in this we see one of the characteristics of the Syrians is that they are willing to listen. Because we find that when when we move on to look at the New Testament, we see the fact the same thing happening there. That there are those in Syria willing to listen to the word of God and be obedient to it and to turn to it now including this here um, what, what God was trying to do was shame the children of Israel because here was this Syrian this Syrian this, this, this uh, you know, individual from outside of the children of Israel who was able to seek out the, the prophet Elisha it would have been much easier for the people of Israel to seek out Elijah and listen to his words, but they chose not to. Even though they knew where he was and it was easy for them to find him, they didn't want to listen. And that was their problem. They didn't want to listen to God. And that was the reason they were suffering, but they weren't willing to listen to it. When we read in the, one of the Gospel of Luke, you know, Naaman is mentioned there. You know, make it quite plain what God was trying to say to the children of Israel when he brought when Naaman was cured we read in chapter 4 of of the gospel of Luke and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian so here was this individual from another nation who was willing to listen to the words of God but yet we do see that the other characteristic of the Syrian nation does come through uh, in, in Naaman because after he's given the honor to God and the glory to God, he asks this thing of, uh, you know, of Elisha. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when his, my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there. And he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. So again, we get that idea of compromise. The fact that these Syrian, the Syrian character often is to compromise and to absorb the, the nations around it because of how they've been treated over the centuries of, of being dominated by other nations. The way that they have coped with that is rather than fighting back, as the children of Israel always did when they were occupied, they often would fit in with the nation that was in control of them at the time. And we see that certainly uh, when it comes to uh, you know, sort of Assyria. Now the end of Syria as a nation comes at this point when the Assyrians I- invade the land. Uh, we know that this is the point at which uh, their time as an independent nation comes to an end for a long time. In fact, it's actually not until uh, you know, the end of uh, the Second World War that we then see until 1946 that we see another independent Syria uh, actually coming uh, to pass. But we do see 
prophecies fulfilled in relation to this nation of Syria. We get this in Isaiah in chapter 8. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meir Shalah Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So we see then that this prophecy was made long before Assyria came and, and took away the riches and destroyed Damascus. But we know that that came to pass. We read in Second Kings in chapter 16, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done before. And then we read on, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Syria, came up to Jerusalem to make war and they besieged Ahaz but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah and Elath. Then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. But we see the response of Ahaz again. The, you know, the king, you know, instead of turning to God, turns to uh, worldly powers. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Ker and killed Rezin. So Rezin was the last king of Syria before it was then subsumed into uh, the other nations. So, on, you know, for the whole time of the Assyrian Empire, they, you know, the rest of the time of the Assyrian Empire, the area of Syria was under the control of, uh, you know, of uh, you know, that, that uh, empire. But after that empire, Syria didn't have freedom, because straight after the Babylonian Empire came into existence and took over. <coughs> and we read these words in Second Kings uh, and chapter 24. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim, who was king of Judah at the time, became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Amorites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he, had spoke, that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So time and again, God tries to correct his people, the children of Israel, and bring them back. And one of the peoples that he uses time and again are the Syrians who are willing to turn against the children of Israel, even though they have this close relationship between the peoples and they should be allies normally but there isn't there is this division between them at all times and this isn't going to be an exhaustive history of the the land up until modern times but just to try and indicate the fact that this region because the fact that it has so much water and because of its climate it is a very fruitful area and therefore it is an area to be desired and so many empires have incorporated it into them down through the centuries, such that Syria has not had an opportunity to be independent ever since. So after Babylon, we have the Medo-Persian Empire, and after the Medo-Persian Empire, 
we go into the Greek Empire. So Alexander the Great's conquests included the whole of the area that we would norm, we would describe as being Syria today. And so that brings us up to the time of Jesus, up to the Roman Empire. And again, the Roman Empire included the area that we would call Syria. So it was part of the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus was walking the earth for the first time uh, before his, his death and resurrection. So in this case, we do see that Syria is not in, in this instance being, being used, or the word Syria is not being used in relation to uh, the, the individual people, the grouping, but actually the region. And we get this in, in Matthew uh, and chapter 4. So his, Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And also going on into the Acts of the Apostles, with the following letter, uh, it says in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles, with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. So we see that there were many in this area that we would describe as Syria who responded to the gospel. Many, many more than those of the Jews. And again, here we see a contrast, and it's going back to, to Naaman almost, in the fact that this man was willing to listen to the word of God, and so also there were many in Syria who were willing to listen to the word of God and willing to actually act on it. But freedom for Syria was not anywhere close in terms of being an independent nation. When Rome split into the eastern and western, it was still part of the empire. After that, we get uh, the Byzantine Empire dominating the area. We get the Ottoman Empire dominating the area for prolonged periods. And the Ottoman Empire is in control of this area, Syria, right up until the end of the Second World War. Up until sort of 1914, this is uh, the extent of uh, the Ottoman Empire at that time, including the whole of modern-day Syria. It's only after the First World War that we see the area that, and the map that we would probably recognize a little bit today in terms of the definition of the boundaries of this area of Syria. But even then, this wasn't uh, a free Syria. This was uh, under the control of the French, uh, who, were, you know, who controlled this area, and as you can see, Large parts of the Middle East were also under the control of the British after the end of the First World War. And so we come to the map that we are familiar with today. Syria gained independence again in 1946. So we're talking about a period from the, the death of Rezin as the last king of Syria all the way up to independence in 1946. A vast period of time. And, but the, what we can see is that the character of the children of Israel hasn't changed, or the character of the people of Syria hasn't changed, in the fact that right from the point of independence, they were antagonistic towards Israel and the reformation of Israel in, in 1948. So even just a few years after their own independence, they fought uh, again in the Arab-Israeli war in 1948. Years later, in 1967, they had the Six-Day War and they participated in that as well, fighting against Israel. And also in October 1973, in the Yom Kippur War, again, they fought against Israel with the other Arab nations. 
So we see that antagonism that has existed between these peoples for thousands of years still carries on today. And that's part of God's plan and purpose being worked out. But we see that Syria has still more to do. Still more predictions about Syria exist in the Bible. So when we see this from Isaiah, talking about the burden of Damascus, the prophecy of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. The cities of Aroah are forsaken. They shall be for the flocks which shall lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. Now, although what we're seeing today, we see that the nation is badly damaged we wouldn't say Syria is destroyed as of yet but at the same time it's well on its way to being destroyed but we can certainly say that this prophecy has not been fulfilled yet it's still something that is still to come and later in this same prophecy we get these words Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters, but God shall rebuke them and they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So these words are speaking of an invader coming into the land but being thwarted in his plans. And this ties in with prophecies we also see in Ezekiel chapter 38 talking about the time of the end time of the return of the Lord Jesus to this earth and the invasion of this land by a northern host and this is part of the verses the part of the burden of the prophecy that Isaiah had concerning Damascus at the end and Isaiah also shows us what the outcome will be and behold at evening tide trouble and before the morning he is not he in this case being Gog, the northern host identified in other prophecies, this is the portion of them that spoil us and the lot of them that rob us. We are seeing, therefore, the culmination of a struggle that brings about the day of the Lord that we see prophesied in the Bible, the return of Jesus to bring about God's control over this whole earth. And we see the rushing nations under the command of Gog overrunning Syria and attacking it like a whirlwind. Prophecies like this tie in with this very same period. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and overpass. So this is pointing us forward that this time is coming, that the map we see now isn't going to stay as it is for very long. That these things do have a clear relevance for us in the future they talk of a time of God's kingdom coming on this earth but they also talk of dark days for this earth God has given us the information in his word he's given us information about what his plan is and how it's working out and it's quite clear from the scriptures at what's at stake it's a question of everlasting life as a free gift from God or death those are the choices that we have to make we can't wait to see these things coming out. These invasions that we see here, we can't wait to see them happen before we respond to them. 
because they can happen so quickly. If five years ago somebody had said it, you know, that Syria would be in the state it is today, people would have laughed at you. <coughs> and yet, today, if you said to people Syria could be destroyed and cease to be a nation, people would actually believe you. So time is flying by quickly. But we do know that this earth is in God's hands. And he sets up kings and he brings them down. We know we've been told that. Whatever the present outcome for Syria, it cannot be long before the Lord Jesus returns to this earth and closes for good the rule of men on this earth. And we get these, this prophecy from Daniel. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The choice is ours. Do we want to be part of that kingdom? Or do we want to die? That's the choice we have to make. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Thank you.